of experience and expectations that we know because God's promises are sure. I want to ask you to turn with me this morning to two portions of Scripture. The first is Luke 24, and then also, if you want to have a finger in John's Gospel, chapter 20. It's been several weeks, but we have been in the midst of a review, a study of these post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus. It is most instructive and interesting, those select times, uh, select companies to which he chose to reveal himself. And we read together really one of those that is a highlight of that first Easter day. So Luke 24, and we're going to break into the chapter and begin reading in verse 33. This is the close of what we looked at last time I was with you. Christ's appearance to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's made himself known. He was hidden to their knowledge for a season. He was, as they phrased it, made known to them in the breaking of bread. And then he departed from them. And they chose to rise even late in the evening and return that seven-mile journey to Jerusalem to report that the Lord was indeed risen and had shown himself to them. So we begin reading in verse 33 from this account. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how it was known of them in the breaking of bread. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that he'd been a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, He said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Now if we turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 20. John chapter 20. And again, we'll break into the chapter, and we'll begin reading here in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, 
Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Well, amen. End our reading. Trusting again the Lord to add his blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's do bow our heads and our hearts again together. Heavenly Father, we come today, or truly with mingled hearts and emotions, we have thought and sought to bring honor to our brother that or lays upon really a deathbed, and yet can with us lift up words of testimony and praise of eternal expectation as we have done this very day. And here we read words of a risen Savior with promise and commission to these His loved ones and disciples. And we ask that these words might indeed find a lodging in our hearts, that we might know something as we've even read of an understanding of the Scriptures. And so, by Your Spirit, work in us that which we need. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Luke, the historian who wrote one of the four Gospels and the second volume, as it's often referred to in the book of Acts, says very early in that second volume of Acts that of these appearances of Christ after His resurrection, there was an importance. We read these words, speaking of the disciples, to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We have already, if you'll recall with me from several weeks back now, given some meditation to the previous appearances of Christ on this day of resurrection, this Easter day. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene in a private interview, as it were, prior to his second appearance, if you will, to all of the women that had gathered early that morning at the tomb. What words of encouragement and challenge we found to these women and to Mary. There's also another appearance that occurred in that day that we don't have a record of what happened. We only have in two places the record that it did happen. And that was an appearance unto Simon Peter. You read in the, really the chronicle of resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. As Paul, after that brief statement and summary of the gospel, speaks of those to whom the risen Christ showed himself. And he mentions that he showed himself to Cephas, to Peter. And so we know that that occurred. We found it in a reading in Luke. I had hoped to change my inflection a little bit as I read through that because the the reading of it and even the inflection can give a different appearance than sometimes we would think as we go through. When those two from the road to Emmaus emerge and come into the upper room with the eleven and those that were with them gathered together. 
it's really the twelve or the apostles that say to them, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared unto Simon. They took a little steam out of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They thought they were going to come in and say, the Lord is risen indeed, but they come in to hear. These that are gathered, speaking and rejoicing about the appearances of the risen Christ. So here we have another record of an appearance to Simon Peter. Now, I've paused here. We may try and draw some thoughts from that as we come to the appearance recorded in John 21 by the Sea of Galilee where Christ pulls Peter aside after he's spoken to the others with him there on the seashore. But that appearance has occurred as well this day. And of course, the travelers on the road to Emmaus that we most recently looked at has occurred. But now we come to the crowning appearance of that Easter day. If you notice in John's Gospel, his record, the great care and even the repetition, really, that he gives, emphasizing that it was the same day, that it was the first day of the week, And this is the beginning of those peculiar references in the New Testament Scriptures to Christian assembly and worship on the first day. The day of resurrection. We say it often. We say it again now. We gather every Lord's Day as it's termed in Revelation 1. We gather every Sunday because it is on this day that we commemorate the new creation that Christ is risen from the dead. And I say John is careful to emphasize it's still that day, the first day as they're gathered. But as we come to these two readings of that event, as Christ appears now to the eleven, to the disciples as a unit, though notably, had we read one verse further in John, Thomas not being present with them. We'll see that next time. But both of these accounts really encapsulate and anticipate all of that post-resurrection instruction that the Lord will give to His disciples. There's even a lot of discussion among scholars, both in John and in Luke, just where the words spoken in the upper room that night and then subsequent words or allusion to subsequent events takes place in what is recorded here in this appearance. But I say these two accounts combined together, give us that encapsulation of post-resurrection teaching. In many ways, you could see this, though it's not that famous as Matthew's great commission and statement of it, but it is that commission of the disciples that really is the main point of His words to them this evening. The risen Christ is meeting with them. He's making them witnesses of His resurrection. They're going to be the the point of the Spirit, as it were, going forth to proclaim the risen Christ, to teach and preach the person and work of Jesus, to unfold now the Old Testament predictions of their Messiah, to preach the Gospel. And these men come, and they wonder. Parts of this will include apostolic office and testimony and ministry. But the root of really all that he says to these men has application, at least, to all of us. And so I want to look at the words he speaks in this meeting with all the disciples. And really, 
focus on that commission that he gives to them. And we'll look at it today from four perspectives. And the first perspective I want to suggest to you is just to again consider the ones that are being commissioned. These eleven and those that are with them in the upper room. And if we had to summarize these that are commissioned in one word, I think the word would be weakness. Weakness. Here is a band of men gathered together behind closed and locked doors. They're fearful. They're fearful of the Jews. John states it very plainly. But think of all the other emotions that are overwhelming them this night. There is something of anticipation. There's something of joy. There's something of confusion, really, as they're piecing it together. But these reports and rumors that have been started to circulate throughout that day. But I say again, who really are these men? Think of the closing days and hours of Christ's ministry. These disciples whose hearts were troubled in the upper room and our Lord has to utter those famous words, let not your heart be troubled. These are the men that couldn't pray with Him in the garden. I marvel really every time I consider that. Here's the Lord of glory. Here's one you know to be God's Messiah. Here's one you have witnessed, you have seen perform extraordinary miracles. And He pleads with them as He's overwhelmed, as He sweats drops of blood. Watch and pray with Me. And they can't. They don't. These are the ones that I say couldn't pray with Him in the garden. These are the ones that forsook Him and fled. These are the ones that denied Him after they had boasted that they would never deny Him. Here I say, as these men have gathered, how many thoughts of their failures? We've used the word weakness here. Sometimes we use words like weakness and failure when really the word we ought to be using is sin. That is true of all of these men. And now their unbelief is beginning to dawn upon them. There have been, as we said, rumors. Not rumors. Reports of those that have seen the risen Christ. And then Christ Himself suddenly appears. There's a lot of discussion. This is one of those times where people discuss uh, where nothing is said. But there's a lot of discussion surrounding the fact that it's, it's emphasized, it's pointed out, the doors were locked. Or even given the reason, fear. But Christ appears in the midst of them. Some think, well, maybe... He miraculously burst the doors open like He did for Peter in Acts. We read the prison doors and then the gate opened of its own accord. Others, perhaps most, just understand it as Christ miraculously appearing in their midst. The more liberal and unbelieving suggest He was hiding behind a curtain or something. Really? I think maybe He was on a road speaking to some other men instead of that particular explanation. 
Why do we even give them time? But the Lord appears in their midst, and they're frightened. We could suggest, and perhaps the most part of it is the suddenness of his appearing, the supernatural nature, whatever particular way that it worked out, a supernatural nature of his appearance. But yet, Luke informs us as Christ explains himself and calms their fears, I'm not a spirit. I'm not a, you're not seeing a ghost. I'm really here. And he shows his hands. Others mention his feet. Luke is side. That certainly peculiar injury to one crucified as he was pierced, that his bones be not broken. But he says to them, peace. It is a common greeting, but I have to agree with those, the vast majority that understand here, it's much more than just that common greeting that our Lord intends and our Lord communicates to them. And is it not true that we can often use common and familiar words and greetings and yet seek to imply with them deeper understanding, deeper significance? Peace be unto you. If these men have any conscience at all, and we would certainly believe that these of all men did, there is a, a weight of guilt of self-frustration, of sinfulness of which they're conscious that weighs heavily upon them. This one, and again, we don't think of it often. We, we read the words of Scripture and we kind of sequence things that way, but think of the last moments that they spent with him. The last words that were spoken. Words like, wait here and pray. Couldn't you pray for an hour? The last words that they heard him say and the last things they said and did in his presence and suddenly now they're with him again for the first time. Does he begin by saying, Ben, you guys really blew it the other night. Peace. Not only the sins of that evening, the sins of that Passion Week and their debates among themselves as to who would be the greatest, but of all of their sins. Here the risen Christ, with a smile of the accomplishment that has been pleasant to His soul, He speaks peace to these He has just finished, as it were, redeeming. Here, look at my wounds. Understand something more of what these wounds are all about. We read the phrase, and I think it's one of those that is just so full, we just have to wade in a little bit. They believed not for joy. Well, there's an element of faith and belief that's there because that's what's causing the joy. And yet it's perhaps if we could try and put it in our vernacular, this has got to be too good to be true. And yet here it is, right in front of our very eyes. But I want to pull in here, as we draw these first thoughts to a close, the phrase from Luke, that he opened their eyes to understand the Scriptures. Just like he had 
began unfolding to those men as they walked on the road to Emmaus, and we we again pause and marvel at that precious phrase, did not our hearts burn within us as He spoke to us by the way? He opened their eyes to understand the Scriptures. These men were in need of victory over fear, over unbelief, over dullness, over sins. And we are just like them. We are constantly in need of forgiveness and help of the Spirit of God for our fears, for our unbelief, for our dullness, and for our sins. We can belong to Him. We can be His children. We can know much of grace. And yet our experience, our level of dedication to use phrases we often employ, these things can be woefully inadequate. They can be really in the category of sinful neglect. Even when it comes to knowledge. Our Lord, for all the comfort, for all the encouragement that He was bringing to these disciples and those on the road to Emmaus, He doesn't hide the fact of their need or even their sinfulness when He says to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He can be loving. He can be compassionate. He can be coming alongside to encourage and strengthen and help us, His dear children, while He challenges us and rebukes our sinfulness at the same time. So I say these that are commissioned are full of weakness, full of sin. Secondly, I draw your attention to the commission itself. And here I would just put before you the, the word difficulty. There's a phrase in John's account in verse 21 where our Lord says this, As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. This echoes back to the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. We'll not turn it up, but that wonderful and passionate recording of our Lord's prayer to the Father, that summary, that, that meaty doctrinal summary of the Gospel that's part of that prayer. Here, our Lord says, as He did in that prayer, He's sending these out as the Father sent Him. I pause just to consider that. What is then this sending? What is this commission? It's to go into a world that is cursed by sin. To go into a world that beyond that curse is blinded by sin. And to proclaim a message of deliverance from sin. Now we can, from one perspective, look at the ministry of our Savior and say it was relatively small. 
The band of disciples was small. When it swelled and the numbers and the multitudes gathered, he began to preach a few of the details of the gospel, John 6. Some of those details like our sinful inability, our total depravity, about the need of grace, about the total uh, unworthiness of the recipients of grace, about the the, the preaching against the self-righteous tendency that comes up within us. And the multitudes then went away. They didn't walk with him anymore. It was such a departure that he looks at the twelve and says, will you also go away? It is wonderful when you read, and I think it's helpful to understand what in some ways is a difficult phrase in our Lord's ministry to the disciples when he tells them that greater works than these, greater works than the things he did, they will do. He's clearly not talking there about the supernatural power of the works that he did. I mean, Christ raised people from the dead. Now, he granted that to both Old and New Testament on occasion to the disciples. But the Lord isn't there talking about more powerful miracles. He's talking about the fact that their ministry, their preaching of the Word, their fulfilling of this commission is going to reach far more people than He ever did in the days of His earthly ministry. But that doesn't mean that this commission, this work will be any easier. That somehow they'll go into the world the Jewish world, to Jerusalem, to Judea, then Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, and find people sitting there waiting, please come tell me what's wrong with me and how I can be saved. I remember hearing the testimony, I think it's in that, I guess now, famous message, Ten Shekels in a Shirt. If you don't have a cassette copy of that, I'm sure Dane still has about a hundred of them in a cabinet in his office somewhere. Well, how long ago has it been for the days of cassettes? Now you give him a web address and you can get there. It's on Sermon Audio. But I think at least it's in that sermon where he gives testimony of heading to the mission field and having the mindset that these out in the highways and byways of the world, as it were, just waiting for someone to come and tell them how to fix themselves and how to get rid of their sin. And he got to the mission field and he was amazed, found out they enjoyed their sin. They didn't want to leave it. Kind of the same as it is here at home. This commission, I say, is fraught with difficulty. We go not only to those that are lost in sin and who are enjoying their sinfulness, but they have no ability to change themselves. They have no ability even to repent and believe the message we're going to bring to them. But you see, rather than being a barrier to evangelism, rather than being a hindrance to the spreading of the gospel, so many of our Arminian brethren believe is true of us as Calvinists, I think instead the difficulty of our commission, can we amplify it and say the impossibility, humanly speaking, of what we're commissioned to do encourages us to do it anyway. 
Because it doesn't matter if it's the little guy that was raised in a godly home and in a Bible-believing church and new memory verses and even catechism questions from the earliest days of his life. It doesn't take any less of a miracle to open his heart and eyes to the truth of the gospel as the miracle it takes to take the deepest, darkest center that the darkest gutter of the darkest city of the darkest country of our world can produce. Our God can breathe life, can instantly breathe life into these lost, unworthy sinners. And so the difficulty, the impossibility of what we're asked to do in some ways only encourages us to do it. You see, really it's the Arminian that would be hindered in being evangelistic. Because he's having to think, well, how can I manipulate the conversation? How can I get the right sequencing of words and whatever to to get them to make that decision? And you go away thinking, well, I should have said this, I should have done it this way. How many of us have experienced that? Perhaps in days gone by and door-to-door work and so forth. But instead to say, it doesn't matter what sequence, what methodology, what mood. I have the Word of the living God. I have the message of the person and work of a victorious Savior to preach to the neediest of sinners. And so even though these disciples who have seen the way the world and the way the church has treated their master, Jesus. He says to them, as the Father sent me, so send I you. This is a commission, I say then, that is fraught with with difficulty. But let us come quickly to the third point I want to suggest to you today. What are the means then of carrying out this commission. And here I want to just put before you the word power. Power. This is not something that suddenly Peter is going to be able to live up to what he boasted to be and failed at. No, if you want to use the example of Peter, as we'll see in John 21, here's a man whose failure finally convinced him that he didn't have any power. (laughs) That he needed to be endued with power from on high. Christ, we read here, breathed. Literally just ends there. It doesn't say he breathed upon them, though the implication is clear, but it just said he breathed and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Here's why I suggested that in these accounts of this appearance in the upper room, there's anticipation of all really of the teaching and the events of the post-resurrection pre-Pentecostal period, those 40 days in which he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs and spake unto them things concerning the kingdom of God. He breathed on them and said, 
receive ye the Holy Ghost. The outpouring of the Spirit. Of course, we see that as we even read that. I, again, often marvel at the sequencing of our New Testament readings in the morning and the subject matter of the message. We read the day of Pentecost. There was that outpouring of the power of the Spirit. But I want to just dwell for a, a moment here on really a point of, of truth and of doctrine. For them to receive the Holy Spirit, he's not speaking here of regeneration. He's not speaking to men that are devoid of the Spirit, that are devoid of the indwelling of the third person of the Godhead. These are believing men. But there's going to be something given to them beyond. We sang Psalm 51. Again, an interesting conjunction with our message for today. There's a phrase in that psalm, that penitential psalm that David prays and sings after his great sin and fall. He says, take not thy spirit from me. Now let me just pause and preach to us old timers for a little bit. If you happen to have been, can I use the word privileged? I don't know. To have grown up carrying as many and most did in the American churches in the middle 20th century, an old Schofield reference Bible. There was a note affixed to that verse in Psalm 51. David said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. No New Testament believer or no believer of this dispensation, I think is the way he phrased it, needs to pray this prayer. And there teaching and their system works out this suggestion that Old Testament saints weren't regenerated and indwelt by the Spirit of God. That that's something that was impossible until after the resurrection and only New Testament church saints are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They carry that theological point through even to their teaching on the rapture. They say that it's the Spirit indwelt church present in the earth that holds back or restrains the arrival of the man of sin. Well, I remember even as a teenager scratching my head and thinking, okay, well, now if you're saying that believers couldn't be indwelt by the Spirit till after the resurrection, but yet it's this indwelt church that keeps the man of sin from coming, what about the people that are saved during the tribulation? The believers that are still here, there's no hindrance to them being indwelt because Jesus already rose, right? So, so it's just how many, what numbers of indwelt people are here. I, I digress. No, the point is not that there's ever been a point in time when somebody could be a believer that hasn't been worked upon regenerated and indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's what the new birth is. But if you see, I think, both with what David prayed about in the psalm, particularly you go into the book of Acts, and you see, and if you want to do word studies, if you're inclined toward that such thing, it's interesting how a couple of different words with regard to fullness and an infilling uh, are used throughout Acts. You have men that are previously full of the Holy Ghost. 
and suddenly they're filled with the Holy Ghost. The point is not, you know, you regenerated and then dwelt and then you lost it and you're dead in sins again and then, okay, you're regenerated and dwelt again. No, the point is that those that possess the Spirit can be filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit can descend upon them in peculiar ways for peculiar and particular ministry and service. That's what David was lamenting. Lord, you've filled me. You've used me. You've done wondrous things through me in the past along the way. Don't, don't pull that back. Let me get back into that territory. These in Acts that were walking with God, that were enjoying His presence, and yet suddenly the Spirit came upon them in even greater ways to use them for great service. Well, let me bring this down to some very practical application and questions. We're good Calvinists. We believe in the doctrine that's better phrased, the perseverance of the saints, you know, the eternal security, once saved, always saved, is language that isn't quite as specific and has been misused to promote antinomianism. Remember Dr. Allison, some of these discussions back a couple decades ago now, I guess, on the Lordship salvation question. Didn't hold back from using the phrase, you'll populate hell with some of that teaching. But the perseverance of the saints has to do with the fact that those that are regenerated by the Spirit of God, those that are born from above, those that have experienced the new birth that the Lord rebuked Nicodemus for not understanding from the Old Testament Scriptures as a master in Israel, those that are regenerated and born from above can come, as David had, to seasons where they're not enjoying the Lord's presence. To where they're not seeing the Lord do things in them and through them as in other times. Or something of coldness of heart, or we use the term backsliding, comes into the life. I believe the true child of God, born again by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, understands when such things are true of them. Laments. What do we sing that hymn? Oh, for a closer walk with God. Talk about days He once enjoyed. How sweet their memory still. If these men are going to go forward with this commission, this difficult commission that the Lord puts before them. They're going to need power. We're not called upon as apostles to go forth and show extraordinary signs and gifts of the Spirit. But what about just bearing good testimony in days of such rampant ungodliness as our own? There's a difficulty to our witness. There are difficulties to our testimony. And we, as they, need power. 
We need help. And how do we get help? Every sermon I heard as a teenager and in college usually funneled down to the application, are you having your devotions? You'd sit there, well, I don't know. A couple days last week, it's not been a good week this week. Maybe I better go forward. Well, let me put it the other way. We can turn everything into a mechanical, self-oriented, self-righteous performance of duty. But the reality of Christian living is we need help. We need power. We need the presence of God. And we get that by making use of the means of grace. It's understanding our need. It's longing after Christ that should bring us to the house of God. It's understanding our need. It's longing after Christ that should draw us to the Word. It's understanding our need. It's longing after Christ that should call us to approach Him in prayer. To have a relationship with this One who's promised to give us of His Spirit. The means of carrying out the commission, power, is by the Lord pouring of His Spirit upon us. Our time is long ago finished, but there's a fourth thought I just mentioned to you. And that is the authority of this commission. We have in the account those difficult words about remitting sins and their sins being remitted and retaining sins and their sins being retained. You can turn up in Matthew's Gospel very similar language in Matthew 16, 18. Our Lord speaks to Peter after his confession of Christ, of Jesus as the Christ. And Rome has made much use of this in their teaching with regard to the papacy, the keys of the kingdom. Well, the difficult thing for Rome's understanding is that if you turn two pages over to Matthew 18, the very same authority that, Paul, that Christ mentions there with regard to Peter is given to the rest of the disciples. And here, it's repeated in very similar language. The contexts are somewhat different, but the point here, one has to do with discipline here, and I think really covering the whole, the whole idea of proclamation. We have an authoritative proclamation. It's not that we can personally forgive this person's sins, or I'm not going to forgive that guy. That's not the point. And if you read what's true of these very apostles when you go to Acts, with authority they preached and fulfilled this commission. What did they do? They preached the person and the work of Christ. They preached boldly and said, these are God's terms. If you fall upon Him in repentance and faith for forgiveness of sins, your sins are forgiven. If you don't receive Him and fall upon Him in repentance and faith, then you're still in your sins. Here's the authority with which they went forth to preach. Well, again, we're not apostles. We don't have the signs of our office and all of this that were peculiar to that first century. 
But yet we have an authoritative word. And we tell people, look, it's not your brain against my brain. It's not your opinion against my opinion. It's what God has revealed. It's what God has said about how He's bringing sinners to Himself. What glorious good news. Will you hear it? Will you receive it? Will you come? Because there's no other way. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We preach that with authority. Because God has said it. God has done it. Christ came and appeared to these amazed disciples. And I say as we consider that evening, we see their weakness. We see the difficulties of the commission they were given. But we see that there was a promise of being endued with power. And thus they could go forth with authority and preach Jesus. And preach the resurrection. But not only preach Jesus is raised from the dead. All that are in Him, He will bring from the dead to His glorious presence forever. What words to proclaim. What words to hear. What joy to hear them as these men did from the very mouth of their risen Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we today come and confess there is much in these words with which that our souls should be challenged and rebuked. And yet, Lord, there is much in these words whereby we can be encouraged and comforted and helped. And so, by Your Spirit, work in our hearts. Be gracious to us even through this means of grace. And stir us up to be not eyewitnesses of the body and the person of the risen Christ, but to bear witness of what He has done for all His people and what He has done for us. Prosper Your Word to us, we ask in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.